And how did I know that? It was like, I, I simply knew this is coming, and that it was to be included through many people. And there were people who, I didn't tell people who it was, I just asked them if they would be willing to get for me items for like a 18-month-old to two-year-old, some little shoes, soft shoes, or whatever the items are. So if he becomes a public teacher, I think what you'll hear in the next few years is a story rising up out of Argentina or from somewhere in the world. Did you hear about a being on a hillside where all these people came? Or did you hear about a miracle that occurred? And then the world's attention will start turning to that. If he's not to be well known, to me, the miracle is actually happening everywhere. We just won't have a reference point of an author, of a person. But it, it would partly be because the author would be God. And then the directional movement would be through Juan for the sake of everyone. And that's what's happening. So for me, all the classes I've taught are really my teaching. By the way, this is going on in this child over here. Let me tell you about it. Like, I don't look at myself as a teacher. I look at myself as, okay, I have to talk about that, which is going on in these beings who are the great teachers, right? And then the different Native American teachers, and, and some from other continents, but particularly the Native American teachers who would teach me or adopt me, would say to me, you know, you, you need to come live with us, or you, you need to do this, or it's you, we need to adopt you, and I'd think, here I go again. So my own temperament would be more to be in a little cabin out in the woods somewhere and be, have nobody know me and, and like teach, I don't know, um, adolescent high school in a one-room schoolhouse, you know, in a remote area. I mean, seriously, it's like my um, place of self-meaning is so uh, humbly sincere. It, it doesn't hold that I know that much. It's more that I find this state where I never forgot God when I was conceived or born. He never left me. And it's as if heaven shows me, oh, daughter, will you do this for me? So that what Yogananda would need to teach, because her lineage didn't come for her, Tamarisk, who's 25 now or 27, will you teach this on her behalf so she's all right? And then will we hear stories of her out in the Southwest teaching? I hope so. But is she all right? That's really what I hope. Whether she's public or hidden away, that she, this great soul who's affected the whole world more than anybody in Hinduism has in the last thousand years, I hope that she's all right. Yeah, I remember when she was born. She was so shy to come as a girl instead of a boy. Yeah, you feel that when I talk about it. It's very tangible. So this is going on for the whole human race. You know, Tamarisk is here for the whole human race. Or Juan is here for the whole human race. So if you're a Hindu and you love Yogananda and have a picture of her, I go, good, she's here. You know, and let's just live with the same kind, sweet devotion and goodness that Yogananda represented. Or if you're a Christian, I go, good, well, Juan is here. So how do you use the tradition of your heritage to bring that forward, you know, into the music and beauty of the artistry of life now. And then all these different figures who were basically the founder of pretty much every world faith is here. And so, well, what does that mean? It's spectacular. It would be like, well, what music is that? What, what 
light is that? So is that light is acting now because we didn't have to have a war, then we're at the beginning of something just glorious and yet modest. But if we'd had the war, they would have been veiled, which is why I was so, whatever, courageous, intent on doing this. I'd go, there is no way that God would send these beings, and if it was in our power to have the era succeed, leave those children in those states of acute awareness in such debris. I was just aware that we were not going to do it, unless it was the will of mankind to have a horrific fall, which, which came so close. And, and I just have spoken of it today because I've been mindful of the suffering a lot of sensitive people have gone through, and they haven't understood it. And so if you were alive in the 1930s and you watched the Nazi regime start rising, or you started watching Stalin arise, like, I will take over, no, I will take over, and then what, what the world went through during those periods. And I'm not trying to make one country a bad guy. I mean, the United States was very dishonorable in our trade with Japan right before World War II. So we don't talk often in America, but a lot of our trade agreements were not very honorable. So um, it wasn't able to be sustained. The Japanese couldn't sustain the dominating effect of how we were treating them. So were they right to invade Pearl Harbor? No, but there is a reason why they did. We, we weren't just choir boys, you know, the United States wasn't really so. There, there's this horrific occurrence of what went on in the wars, but they were caused by poor behavior and a lack of adequate agreement and a harmonious respect for one another. And so, um, you know, those scars, uh, you call those some scars, scars on the souls. A lot of people who work in fields of yoga and metaphysics have worked on those scars all over the world for a long time. I have colleagues that travel a lot. David Frawley is one of them. He's a very conservative yogic scholar. And he will go and work in areas and stay for a time just to help unknot the some scars through his contemplative practice and prayer. It's just one of the things he's done his whole life. Yeah. So, so the way that we fought these qualities hostily when they built up or it built up in nationalism before World War One, people thought, no, all win, all win, all win, all win, and then the obliteration of what was done to millions and millions of people. It's people didn't necessarily intend that, but that's where no, nobody would give in. No, we're going to win. No, we're going to win, and then just no matter what the stakes, the destruction we were willing to go into rather than the next level of awakening, because we were the people in Plato's cave. We weren't going to come out of it. And there's a famous story I've told many times of, apparently at the end of World War I, it wasn't coming to a, a conclusion in the way people thought it might. So two things happened. A group of people came down out of the hills all around northern India, about 120 different sacred people, and they gathered for... I don't know how long. I've heard it was like three days. I've heard several things. And they just quietly gathered in a large circle, and then they got up one day and left. And the war was over within six months. They were like, it was enough. And they came down, and they built a collective wisdom, and, and they sat. And when they were done, they went home. And the other piece of it is the pandemic occurred. So a great deal of why World War One 
ended is because the Spanish flu came in and started killing all the troops. So they stopped fighting and they went home. They were willing to kill each other, but they were afraid of dying from the flu. It was a very interesting divine wisdom. You might all hate each other, but you're all in awe of me, of God. Here I come. <laughs> so, so this time we didn't have to have the war. It came first. It came at the beginning. Maybe an answer to so many prayers from so many people. Yeah. So if we were building up to World War I or building up to World War II, no matter how much work was going on, we still kept building up in that hunger like a devouring of power and greed. And and you can see it out in the world. I, I every once in a while will say something really irreverent about some of the billionaires and leaders in the world because I'm like, hello, 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 come in in a larger, more humane way, please, so that children learn a more balanced way than to be, like this idea that the apex predator is the highest being is is ridiculous. You would not want to be an apex predator. I don't think you would. The inner state you would live in is horrific. You would never want to be that being. But the person who thinks they're the apex predator is like, look at me, and I go, I'm looking in many other places, and it includes you, but you're not that interesting. <laughs> you could be, though, so much more interesting to every child on the earth if you would just come out of the cave. But the view is, well, what, if I what will I lose? I go, I don't, we don't know yet. But they lose everything if they don't do that. They, everything that has meaning, they lose. It's, it's the most interesting thing. Yeah, so we, the build-up before the war is the period of great suffering and consciousness. Then when the war happens, it's the great suffering in life and for nature. And then after the war is the homework assignment of cleaning up the reform school and then we prepare for the next war and we do the same thing. So in this one, the suffering was so great these last few years in that level of consciousness building to the war. And then we came so close. We came so close, I have a whole notebook I brought with me of what I was going to teach if we were going the other way. And it's where it was so hard. I, I didn't know if I'd be well enough to be able to get on a plane about just in the last two to five weeks. The, the argument was so extreme, you know, which way. And so it isn't China and Russia and America being enemies. It's actually a collaborative movement where shared leadership is possible. I mean, China's one of the oldest cultures of the world and has a great deal of Confucianist Taoist wisdom. And the flow of working with the collective is, in many ways, much healthier than it is in the West. And so having parts of that come in along with the NATO nations and the British Commonwealth and then the Americas. And people go, I didn't know we could be a family. I go, well, it's not that hard. It's just that there's not that one, two, winner, loser, the predator, and then the victim. It's not, not the reality. But there were so few models out there. I know very few people talking about the models of what to be and do. There are lots of wonderful things in psychology and in um, historical thought and in science. In consciousness, there's a lot of practice of mindfulness and certain virtuous perceptions, but not the actual being into doing, the, the water into wine. And the young people are all calling out to, to the elders, 
you know, please help us with this, because that's what they need us to do. A lot of younger people would not so much demonize their parents or educators, but kind of blame them. You're not, you're not doing the right thing, or you're not helping me the right way, because they, they couldn't get the parents and teachers to show them the way forward. But I think that the way forward wasn't possible for parents and teachers till we, we were through the, the World War. Because you would have protected and guided your children differently had we gone that way. And again, the whole matrix, like the pop-up tent of all these reincarnate souls. Imagine if overnight every, all the lights went out and you went, what was that? I go, oh, all the reincarnate kids were veiled. You know, I, I could not imagine, I mean, I can imagine that whole world, but I, I would not have wanted that for any being, especially for them. Because that's not where they were sent. But we would have all then been in the cave for about 14 years. It would have been, you know, it would have been very thrilling as a Netflix extended program or, uh, you know, a Game of Thrones continuum. But it would not have been a very lovely thing to live within. People would have gone within a day, wait a minute, wait a minute, I, I didn't really mean it. I don't really want to go this way. It would have been too late. Yeah, so, so with it done now, there's a there's a kind of almost a vacuous space like what is that I go that's the whole space of time of the future and heaven through this matrix of conscious children and their families all over the world are at the artist's easel and at the at the composer's uh, sheet music with a pen or computer ready to compose, ready to paint, ready to write, ready to govern. What, what will the governance be like? How will we find the equitable way of being? Will it be perfect? No. Was it meant to be perfect? No. But, but it's in the hands of the children of the whole world to do this. And then our attention has to go to, well, then how do we caretake the earth together so that we did we compose this adequate home for them all over the world? And how do we teach them a modest and virtuous life so that the elements and the plants and animals are willing to do this to me with us? And so that a human being becomes the balance of what they could be like, the way the vase holds the flowers, that our life becomes one that can hold grace. Here, here we are. Here's your daughter. You know, here's your son. Bob has a daughter and son. Here's his daughter. Here's his son. Here's your daughter-in-law. How lovely. And then the bouquet of grace that's, that's that water into wine is held through the modesty, but beauty and prosperity and balance of their modern life. Yeah. And then we extend that in an infinity symbol out to each other, another person's children, you know, Stephanie's son, Sarla's children, grandchildren, and then we go, good, this is so wonderful. And then through them comes this next meeting that has um, just that quality of time where they go, oh, it's not about the past and all the things that were dangerous and all the fighting. It's about, oh, we had to do that till we knew how to walk. Now that we know how to walk, how do we live? You know, now a child can have a tantrum, but if, if the... 50-year-old kid and had a tantrum and broke everything in the bedroom, we'd go, what are, you, what are you doing? You know, you're 50 now, you're not two and a half. But if a two-year-old two comes in and breaks a toy, 
then all of a sudden they realize they're upset because their toy's broken and they want you to get a new one because they don't want to be responsible that they broke it. They're suffering because they broke it, but they're usually not responsible that they broke it. And then you might teach them we're going to patch it together or we'll make a new one or well, we'll do these things and maybe we can get a different one, but we have to learn as we get it to treat it differently. We don't then give them another one when they break it again. That, that's what mankind has been in, is this tantrum. And part of it was, we need now to go, we've gotten up from the council fire and the wars, and now we're ready to be human beings, meeting the future beyond warfare. And then, how nice to respectfully meet you and find, oh, what are you to do? What am I to do? What are we to do? What is the whole human civilization to do? And then we, we turn to calling each other forward to that respectful countenance and dignity. And in that is a great contentment, not a seeking for grasping and happiness, but a natural contentment that's very, very, uh, very grace-filled. I'll use that word again. There was another question of uh, earlier about children not having babies, how there were um, <clears throat> people throughout the world where they weren't having babies. And some of it sought, some of it not sought, or there were also animals in certain circumstances. But I've been watching this for a number of years, and um, I think it's two things I would say. One of them is biologically, when there's a system that is overrun or overpopulous, the animals tend to sort of naturally start to have fewer children or not, not have them. And I think that's partially occurring in mankind. You know, when you walk through a group of people, you release just like gazelles, pheromones. You watch gazelles or deer and their skin will flicker as they walk by each other. And they're, they're reading the atmosphere all around them. Are there predators around? You know, what is occurring around them? And as soon as a, a predator comes into their general arena, they will not turn it a certain way. One of them will move their skin in such a way that the pheromones are secreted out in the group and they all know immediately through scent or whatever the sensory perceptions are, predator, run. They, they know that. Or they know the lion's not hungry. They can simply tell and they're quiet and the skid flickers gently. And the lion could be 50 feet away from them and they don't, they don't move away. Then all of a sudden they can tell the change and they know and they run. So I think in the same way, people will walk through a, a town, a village, a farmer's market, a large city, and they know in their pheromones, no more children, too large a population. So a young woman will go to the doctor and she'll seem to have no problems in her fertility, but for some reason she's not conceiving children. Or the man will go and find that his sperm count is a tenth of what his grandfather's was. And he has no markers for damage in his body. There's nothing wrong with him. There simply are not more children needed in the ecosystem. So everything around him is telling his body, not too much fertility here. It's a kind of natural balancing. I think that's part of it. And then the second part of it, I think, is a, is a willful sense of... Um, you'll have a young woman where she'll know if there was going to be a... She's not conscious of it, but she's aware if it's an afflicted time, I who want a child don't want a child. 
and then she'll be wishing for a decade to have a child, but she won't have a child. They can't find any reason why not. She just doesn't have a child. The child just doesn't come. And uh, there's some old stories in Judaism about that, that at a certain point, what's called the Goff, G-O-F-F, the Goff or G-O-F, the, the place where a baby resides before they come down to be born, that if too much evil is in the world, the Goff will be empty. And children will not be sent any longer. Yeah. So that's an old part of some of the stories in Judaism. And um, I do think there's a place where an aspect of that has gone on. So that, uh, let's take a very wonderful young woman who's wanted a child for 15 years and has not had one. But there's no reason for her body to not be able to have one. She's not had one so that she didn't lose one in famine, pandemic, warfare. She would have been one of the people helping the world to succeed. But unfairly, her life force has been used to save mankind when she's exactly the kind of woman who would have been an incredible mother. If this is where, where the karmas, when we carry each other's homework, are not always, it's not always the way it's going right now. A lot of people will go, oh good, that woman did my homework so I get to do what I want. I go, well, that's not the way now that the tribe of the human race is all right, everybody has to get up and kind of do more of their own work. Because our, our history is one of sacrifice saints. Like, you know, Jesus is on the cross and that saint will die or they'll give up things or they'll do whatever. It's, um, years ago I had a teacher ask me, you know, did I ever think of wanting to go off by myself? And I said, well, if I lived in a cabin in the woods and I looked out there and I saw mankind going through this, I wouldn't be able to stand it. I go, I would think, I know what to do. I, I can't, people have to get up and do these things, you know, would be, what would it be like to be out there looking at the sunset, watching the world fall apart? It would be, that would be a hell world for me. Yeah, so, oh, thanks, Pa. <clears throat> so I think it's, it's um, if you know somebody who's wanted a child or it's been a difficulty for them to conceive a child in the last four, five, seven years, Probably in the next three years, their child will come because it's safe for their child to come now. And for people who've had little children, how wonderful, and that your children came at such a difficult time. They carry both places. So comfort them, teach them virtue, teach them to be unafraid, but respect the places where they've known that there was something wrong out there. They were correct. They were correct. And then ask them to pray for nature and their family and the dreams they have of the future. That would not be unlike my parents growing up during World War II or they were in young adult years or my grandparents with World War One. You know, they saw horrible things. And so and yet that's part of what shaped them into becoming the noble people and the appreciative people that they were. If everything had been easy we, all, we, you know, we tend to go, you don't have a better apple? No, there are five kinds of apples, no more. You don't have 12 kinds. And so a lot of the entitlement materially in the world right now has been the people who were testing. I might fall a little, I might fall a lot. If you were my neighbor and I had to give you up, I'd kill you before I'd kill my dad. I'd turn you in, not my dad. There's that weird, a lack of 
goodness that was sort of twisted and there's a tremendous amount of dystopian literature and media present uh, partly because kids were studying how to fight a world war and executives were writing and producing things that were very consumed by that concept and there are not so many beautiful heroes for children to follow right now which I think is a marker of how dangerous the time was yeah so if you if you look out I think that probably there'll be a normalizing of how many children the world can handle your countries politically are trying to have enough young people who are good servants and so a lot of countries whether there's voting or not whether there's democracy or or uh, sort of social democracy or um, democratic republics or communist nations they're trying to have enough young people born or coming in from nations viewed to be subservient in culture so that there are people to work fields and um, artisanal jobs and um, blue-collar jobs and jobs of service and so a lot of people in the middle levels of middle-class culture and um, professional domains of office work and society are trying to live in investments in life off of a lot of young people being born in countries and brought in to work for those classes it's a certain predatory behavior to keep society not functioning in a balanced way but in a more and more and more way so there's a kind of need in the population to balance and in a need in how we treat each other in various nations to balance that it's not just the the more and more or the ruling over anybody else i don't mean that we don't all have to do our shares of mopping and and uh, you know difficult human humble work and also sophisticated work but the idea of building a class that would you know suppress others so a lot of our countries from Nigeria to India or Pakistan or the Philippines will have a high population base being brought into other nations as servants and so the the population of Japan has declined greatly uh, elder populations in most of Western Europe are declining greatly the United States so we'll say one thing about how we're dealing with the border in Mexico but we're wanting Mexican workers to come in and Central American workers to come in to provide the young population to take those jobs. It's a, it's a, what would I say? It's a, it's a, like an insincere conversation. And so I, I just think people have to be honest about it. That's what we're doing. And what population can the world handle? Like the Indian subcontinent cannot handle its population doubling in 40 years. When the Green Revolution happened in the 60s and 70s with the wheat crop, there was intense starvation thwarted by a group of Western biologists who created wheat that was about a third the height of the normal wheat. So it could grow from seed to harvesting in something like three to five months. It was a, it was a short season, and they could grow, I think, three, two to three crops a year. So they avoided the, the famine. But they told people in India, we will not be able to do this again. You must get a handle on your population and the maintenance of the existing population. So that, that responsibility is just all over the world. Yeah, and then we find 
the kids coming in are in more of a harmonic of consciousness. Um, so if a person said, I'd like to have five children and the, the ecosystem can handle two, it's something happens in the person and their community and the heavens and the children who come to them. Maybe they have their grandmother or a great leader from their ancestral homeland, like a like a writing of a of the sailing of the ship. I think there's something like that going on. If we keep going, where we have families say we'll have many children, and it'll be okay, and and then another area doesn't, that's been a that's almost becomes a weapon of like a, we'll have many children and your country won't. There there are nations who've been arguing on that level, even though we don't, it's talked about a lot at the UN. It's not talked about a lot out in the, in the press. There, there are articles, but not, not a lot. It's not really politically correct to talk about it. I'll have a woman say to me, I can have as many children as I want. And I'll tell her, well, you know, it will cost you in the United States this much to raise seven children. And can your body handle it? And is this the best thing for the area where you live? And she won't have thought of it those ways. She will have been being encouraged by parts of society. It won't necessarily even be what she wants. And then somebody else will be into a nihilistic sense of why would I bring a child into the world? It's so difficult right now, you know. What kind of future do they have? See, so both sides of that are part of that old conversation. And then I think in a young woman who would have been my great-grandmother's age, a girl who was too intelligent was pushed away a lot in schools or in society. It was considered to be unseemly to have a daughter too educated. And that's not so true now. It was considered to be difficult if a, if a son was, I don't know, too emotional or too artistic or didn't want to take over his you know, great-grandfather's business. and. Um, it now becomes a question of what's needed in a family and a society, and what is the nature of that boy and young man. You know, and then with transgender people, the sense of an inclusion. In Native American traditions, I found this in Alaska a lot, the transgender person was seen as a messenger between heaven and earth. And they were not to be allowed to victimize themselves in the village. I talked with elders in, in a number of villages about this. There were about five villages and there would be a, very, a person and, and the way they were held in the village was very specific. It was considered that they weren't to be to victimize themselves and their perception of themselves and that it was hard for them because they lived in between the worlds of the women and men and they were messengers in between the worlds of heaven and earth. It was, it was a remarkable experience, you know, and um, the wisdom that people held the way children were, and remarkable. So I'll have transgender people come to see me or contact me and ask me, you know, what should I do? And I'm, I'm eight years old and my parents won't let me do hormonal treatment. And I'll say, well... I think you need to play with who you are. You don't really know that yet. Yes, I do. I go, well, you know, there's a lot you need to play out within yourself. Then when, by the time you're 15, 16, 18, you're going to know more of who you are. And if I talk to someone at those ages or into their 20s or 30s, I'll say, if we were in a time 
when the medicines weren't available to you to take and you had to stop taking them, you might suffer a great deal. I would not want you to do that. I would rather you be comfortable in the body you have. So no matter what medicines are or not available, you are all right. You know, do you support my taking the medicine or having surgery? I go, you can do that if you want, if you need to do that. It's more the question of how are we as we go forward of what the society can and can't handle. So the person finds who is she, who is he, who are they as they move through society. So, yeah, with children coming into the world, I think younger people will know more easily in the next couple of years what to do with who they have. And I would err on the side of trying to make sure that places don't fall into deep famine or chaos in regions of the world that are hugely populous and can't be sustained. A lot of it's about sustainability. You know, whether it's the transgender person's sustainability of their well-being physically and biologically and hormonally throughout whatever happens in life on this earth or it's the or it's the child coming in to the family. Then if somebody has real infertility and they want a child, there are so many children in the world who come in and don't have the parenting that it's expensive but one can go and find that placement, you know. Which is not the same as a person having their own child. But it is available, you know, in our, in our world. Yeah. I think if we'd fallen too much more intensely, there would have been more extreme experiences of that with peop children not coming or something. It was very tangible mystically in the last couple of years, very, very deep. So anything more? Any questions? What was the tipping point in the last few weeks? Uh, that's a great question. I was, um, well, when I knew, when I knew Hitler was taking a body, this is in about 30 some years ago, a woman who was the director of the Delphi Museum in Greece came to the U.S. to visit. She was this remarkable figure, Ariadne, who spoke six or eight languages fluently, and she would speak at the Theosophical Society in London every year and in Switzerland, and she was just remarkable. And she lived in a village down below uh, Delphi on the coast of Greece called Galaxidi that was in a little cove, very beautiful, gentle cove, so it was, it was safe from big storms. And uh, shipbuilders from Venice had fallen in love with it, and they had come across centuries before and built little houses there so they could come from Venice and stop there and stay and then go on around the coast. So it's, it's little, it's uh, maybe 2,000 people live there. So she grew up there and she was a child during World War II and she went through torture and great anguish at the hands of the way Greece fell politically. And so did the other people of her generation. They didn't talk about it very much, but they went through some real personal atrocities as very young people. So she came to the United States, and when she met me, she, I, this is a more personal story, but I'm going to tell anyway. She came up to me and got very wide-eyed, and she said, are you gay? And I said, no. She said, well, I have nothing against gay people. I have gay friends, but I've never felt like this in my life. I simply love you. <laughs> but not as if it were romantic, but 
like unlike anything I've ever felt before. I don't know what to think of this. And I said, well, I feel the same way about you. And she was probably in her 70s then. Piercing blue eyes, hawk-like face, very handsome woman, tall, great posture, just a remarkable person. She was the reincarnation of someone named Zeno, X-E-N-O, who was the founder of Stoicism. So when I met her, I was like, whoa, you're with this like amazing being who's like at the very foundation of Western philosophy or global philosophy, right? Zeno lived in Athens, and he would go down to the base of the Acropolis where there was the marketplace called the Agora. So people would be trading and coming from the country and bringing in everything, chickens and fabric and... And he would just sit on a stoa on a bench and visit with the other philosophical men of his time. They would just talk about, they would just do exactly what we're doing here. And they would just talk about reality and what they thought and felt. And, and so Zeno was the one who constructed the concept of the individual freedom that underlies the whole reality of Greek philosophy. Right, so, so Socrates came in Plato. And then Plato came up with the idea that probably came from Socrates that each person had a spark of the divine. So each person had the water and to wine from heaven to them. He didn't take it out and extrapolate it to another person. As I talked about Mary doing with Jesus, she went, what is in my son you all be with. But Plato did it, he's the first person I know of who did it from heaven to himself or heaven to you. So it was like a, a light bulb going off. He, he experienced that and thought, well, this is real. So Zeno is the one who underlies the whole concept, though, of freedom and the vastness of what is good in life. So meeting her was an amazing experience, and several people here knew, knew her very well. So she asked me, would you ever come over and teach, you know, at Delphi? And I said, I would be honored to come over and teach at Delphi. I knew you are to accept this invitation I don't know how it will happen, but we'll see. So uh, over the next few years, I talked with Blaine about it, and uh, we've worked together for about almost 36 years. And I said, I'd like to do this. Maybe I didn't know how we would set it up. And she had built a retreat center next to her home, and it could only hold about 20 to 25 people in the classroom area. And so I told her that we would come. But <clears throat> I found during that time that just above her is the Albanian border. And when you're a normal human being has things revealed to them, like, I want to make my grandmother's soup, you know, or oh, the melody of that, I have to play on my guitar. You go, where did that come from? Right, it's revealed to you. Or you want to knit a sweater in a different pattern than you've ever done, or you are moved to something and so there's a revelation to you, and that's your life force. So a mystic is somebody we talk of where they just, it's part of their job. It's not really more special than anybody else's. They're just naming a thread that's like a thread of grace, not a thread of yarn. But it's as common as the thread of yarn. It's not more special. It's just that's what I'm supposed to weave or crochet or knit. So I was aware, oh, Hitler's over there. And I was aware, oh my God, what are we ready for now? I was probably in my mid-30s, late 30s. 
and I was aware if he's here, everybody who's still following him is going to be following him. He didn't give up what he wanted to do. He wanted to have the length of time Jesus had had so far. It's part of why I use Jesus today, the Christ force and also in relationship to what we're talking about with the whole world. Hitler wanted to have an era of 2,000 years just like he thought Jesus had. He thought that was his due and that he could manipulate it if he could understand how churches and governments had utilized theology to form a civilization or a society. So I was aware that Hitler was in a young boy's, was here, a little boy, and I was with my mother who noted the change in my behavior. She just said, What's, what is it, honey? She was used to observing me her whole life. She's no longer alive. I adore her. And she said to me one day, years ago, oh my God, oh my God, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. She goes, it's your face. And then she goes, oh, it's gone again. She'd say, the circles are there and you're exhausted. And then look at you. She goes, oh, for at least 20 seconds, there you were, you know, it was beautiful. And she goes, and then she goes, why does God have to do that to you? And I said, it isn't God. It's like, it's just the nature of the rhythm of the, of the mystical train of things, but like a melody, like a melody. So she asked me, what is it? And I said, oh, Mom, you know, Hitler's in a body. And I said, you know, I should have known. I mean, if all of these children were coming who are reincarnations of saints and sages, so that there are constellations of families and groups and, you know, the movement of the stars, so to speak, in humanity, I should have known there would be a negative constellation, too. There has to be, because of where we are in duality. We were still good-bad. And so I was aware, she asked me, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to have to take him on as if he were like one of my godchildren. Because if I negate him, he'll go against the kids. So I have to sort of be a godparent to him to see him through. It's very much like the story of um, Sleeping Beauty where the baby Aurora is born and everyone comes and blesses her and... Then one of the fairies is left out, so she comes in and wreaks havoc and rages and curses her. But this wise old fairy has still been looking out the window at nature and being attentive to everything but aware that there was a disturbance in the force and had waited and not, not given her wish for the child yet. So the elder fairy came in at the end and said, I take the curse of her life and she will not die and she will not be harmed. She will simply fall asleep, and the whole kingdom will until she's awakened by love's first kiss, right? So that elder fairy couldn't stop what somebody had willed, but she had the power to transform it through grace. So that's the first movie I ever saw, was the Walt Disney version of that. So I was aware, okay, Hitler's here, and I just kept a part of my attention meditatively upon him as a godchild. And then I went and taught a retreat and I told the people attending it, it won't just be like five days or seven days, it's gonna have to be like 16 days because I have to be there for an extended period of time to saturate this quality of evil that's trying to occur and kind of call it forward adequately back into heaven. 
So people stayed in the village and walked up the hill. It was about a half mile or so up the hill in this intense summer heat. And then they'd go back down in the middle of the day and back up. And we had this beautiful retreat. And then I came home. And then I went back again when he was in a certain period of adolescence where the pull on him to fulfill the wishes people had for the continuation of that evil or that fall into power and horrific behavior was so strong in him then. So I went back and then I went back a third time, probably 15 years ago. Um, so, and then when Stalin came in, I knew there would be a constellation, there were about eight or nine of them who are all men, and then the women connected to them, and, and, you know, the kind of groups connected to them. So when Stalin came in, I was back visiting my mother also at our little, little cottage in the Finger Lakes that was built when my parents were pregnant with me. And I was in our tiny kitchen. It's about 1,056 square feet. So I'm walking back from the hall into the kitchen, and I just stopped walking. And I was aware that Stalin was probably the single most intelligent being I had ever encountered, but that his consciousness was inconscionable, like a comprehensive psychopath. And how would I say this? I had to be conscious enough to mother him home. I knew how hard it would be. Uh, God broke my heart. But... I understood that he needed me to do that. So my mother asked me, what is it, honey? And I said, just a minute. Because I knew he couldn't be aware of me. I, I've lived enough and worked with Native people that, you know how a deer is when no one can see her? She's just a deer. But she knows how to be just so still in herself that she is not important when she would only be important to a predator. To the rest of the world, she's part of the beauty of the ecosystem. So I'm a very good deer. And so I was just present until I had an understanding of him as a human being, enough to see where he did not know how to remember God. So I remembered that for him. And um, then I told my mother what it was, and she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, if Hitler's here, and Hitler's on the meridian that fell, causing World Wars One and Two, then it's very dangerous, because if that meridian falls again, we sort of know how to fall from certain disagreements among particular cultures and peoples. And then with Stalin here in Siberia, he was in Siberia, I said, with the two of them here, that is so strong. And then there were... Saddam Hussein's two sons are two of the other beings, and uh, I know a lot of people who can't stand President Bush, W. Bush, and he somehow knew that those two men were dangerous. And so through his tenure as president, they were killed. And then there was a man in Bursa, who I never met, but I was aware of him out west of Istanbul, so I was there in Istanbul with work and with a colleague, close Buddhist colleague of mine, a uh, woman, and I rented a car and drove us out uh, past Nicaea and stayed in Nicaea and then went out into the town that this one man was from to 
do the same thing, kind of shepherding him into a particular relationship of grace. And um, so me, the group of them were just building in their years, in youth and adolescence and adulthood, to be strong enough that it's a constellation of like a like anti-gravity, sort of a principle of consciousness so willful that it causes millions of people to fall with it. Like a like an anti-charismatic state. I'm not a charismatic teacher, but they have that charismatic capacity, only a negation of it, like a black hole. So I had to have the courage to face the black hole, and um, and I don't really have power or money, so I have nothing in the world that's of importance except a kind of a like an ordinary life. So there was nothing of trade for me in the marketplace. That was just me. And it's sort of like being nobody or everybody, just all, all of us are like this. But I had that place where God had never had me forget him. Like, how could that fail? I mean, if you know the Bhagavad Gita in, in Hinduism, you know, it's the Mahabharata's long, beautiful volume of many stories, but the Bhagavad Gita is taken out of it and, and utilized and is probably the second most read book in the world beside the Bible. And in it, there's a great discussion with Arjuna and Krishna. Krishna is like a sustaining figure the way Jesus would be or Muhammad or Buddha. And so Krishna says to him, you know, you have to choose your, your family or you can choose me. So <clears throat> there's this vast army where there's Krishna and Arjuna chooses Krishna. How could he lose? And why would you choose the other side, no matter who they are? Why would you ever leave heaven? So I simply stayed with it, and my life became somewhat reclusive to have the strength, and um, very contemplative, and um, how would I say this? Uh, the, the tradition you talk about in Catholicism would be an intercessionary force. Mm -hmm. Like you stand as a bridge in between to protect or to shepherd. So very little energy hit me because of states I live in, but I had to be the one to pay the price for being willing to not have it fall. So I was used as a uh, instrument to teach many world teachers because they could watch a lot of this going on too. Would they help humanity? Would they help me? Would they not? Because so, they would have karma one way or another. So I was used in many ways and I always chose uh, when a lot of public attention was offered to me, I always chose to go away from it. And if I if it had served the body of work, I would have gone toward it with interviews or different things, but I became much quieter than I was in public bodies of work. And I was aware of what I was facing. And I have a great uncle, I've told this story many times, my great uncle Arthur, Arthur Sterling Halpin, he lived in Hyde Park, New York, and he was one of uh, Franklin Roosevelt's two closest friends. So as a very little girl, he took me aside in the kitchen one day and just sat down and started talking to me about his relationship with Roosevelt and several points that had been imperative during World War II. And 
at the end of our talk, someone came in and, you know, was like, oh, what are you doing in here with Beth? And he was just, you know, talking with me. But I noted at the time, he wasn't talking to my older brother. He wasn't talking to my dad or other relatives. It was very specifically telling me things that were his very heart of hearts. And he said to me, you may be needed in this way too someday. And, you know, I understood it. And I remember the first time I met him and my, my Aunt Beatrice, who was my, my father's mother's sister, I was a baby. It was before I could say any words at all. And they came into the house at Easter time and they brought two pieces of beautiful European chocolate that were not for children. They were the European idea that you, you do a beautiful uh, hen or a beautiful rabbit, not a, not a cute one, and wrapped in beautiful cellophane. And they put them on the, on the little coffee table in our living room. I was aware that they were extremely important for me and that I loved them so completely. And they were that way toward me. My, my great aunt remained very close to me throughout her whole life. Both of them did. So I was aware of being with this and that that continuation of the wars was at hand and that humanity did and did not understand what we were in. Just the way World Wars One and Two seemed to come out of nowhere, but they didn't in consciousness. Rudolf Steiner would talk about this a lot. There were always people who were the mystics present at the gate who did the work they could. And um, as it built in power in Hitler and Stalin, I simply had to be, I don't know how to describe it, very matriarchally present mentoring them through falling. There's an old statement, it's a bit silly, uh, every saint has a history, every sinner has a future. It was seeing them home, but all the different men and women configured with them too. Because everything comes from God. So I took the whole darkness of everything and would not allow it to not be of God. But it had to be responsible for itself too. I wasn't interceding, carrying it. <laughs> and then I met a young man in Tibet. I took a group of people to Tibet in July 2000. And we went to see a man in Trinley, Georgia, who's a remarkable Young teacher is probably 35 or now. And um, he'd been left during his whole childhood because the Chinese were trying to not support the Tibetan monasteries. So we took enough um, to give things toward food and, and educational supplies for every young monk and nun in Tibet. There were, I think, seven extant monasteries and one convent. So we went to all of them throughout Tibet and were able to support that with every single young student and all of them. But we came to his monastery, they drove the bus down a riverbed. I, I still don't quite understand scientifically how they did that without the tires totally falling apart or the wheels falling off, but they did. Da down a riverbed, you know. And so I came up into the area and I had people be ready because it's about 12,000 feet. I made sure they were in good cardiovascular condition before we got there. And, as we came in for the afternoon and seeing people, there was a tower off to the left. It's like something out of Lord of the Rings. And I just said to Blaine, I'm going to go up that tower. And I just walked up the tower to the top. And when I got to the top room and opened the door, it was a Bon room. Uh, the Bon are, it's um, like the pantheistic tradition from the Himalayas in nature. 
And you can work with it in prayer and alignment and ceremony with feathers and bones and stones. Or you can use the life force of sacrificing animals to try to have power over things. And so I opened the door and it was filled with dead animals and the windows were open. When I just walked into the middle of the storm, it would be like a scene out of a film. And I was aware that he was so adept and he'd been neglected for, at that point, about 14 years in training. And he was comprehensively brilliant and he wasn't aware that he wasn't completely enlightened, which is an extremely dangerous being, like a rabid animal. Does the animal know it's rabid? And I looked out the window and I was aware that he was completely aware of me. He was in the main part of the monastery seeing probably a thousand people that day. But my consciousness would have been fascinating to him because he didn't have any teachers allowed to come and see him. And I knew that and it's part of why I went on behalf of all the Tibetan teachers who couldn't go. I have a lot of training in that field myself for many years. So I was looking out the window and Blaine came up the stairs and I simply turned and and Trinley was just fascinated with wanting to be like me. And I was aware, wow, I had like 14 seconds where his consciousness would have gone into a judgment of me being inadequate or the whole world being inadequate. And so he was the critical mass of the constellation that would have become the Antichrist or the Christ. Right? I had like 14 seconds. And he had had two attempts on his life. And the next few months I communicated with him on internal levels that he could stay where he was. But I said at some point, if there's the will to kill you, your attention will be elsewhere or the people around you who are protective won't be able to protect you. And you could just die and take another incarnation. But this is a really good incarnation. You know, you have attention and the world knows you're here and you should just get up and do this. I, this is all an internal communication with him. So he was at the monastery in rural Tibet and that, that New Year's he just walked out of Tibet. He and another young man just came out and they walked and took a helicopter eventually. They just crossed over the Himalayas and came into India. And so... I knew there was a point where the constellation that was falling was being reconciled. And um, then as it went on, it became the question of, it wasn't just the constellation, but the whole human race. And what did the human race want to do? Because that's up to each of us, but we form collectives that form a critical mass. So beings like me could generate ceremony and deep movement of praying for grace to enter humanity. Not grace through me, but through the heavens and whatever beliefs and theologies and cultures people represent. And just the saturation of that. And many people do that kind of work. But I was aware it would still go back and forth. And then, of course, we all watched what the world was like the last few years. And then the pandemic hit. And then, excuse me, this spring... Uh, it came to a crescendo of Hitler was coming to a maturity where 
you know, when you're a young woman or man, you start coming into the, the, the deep uh, middle years of your life. He still had in him the will to power over time. He had taken, <coughs> he would do a lot of occult work. You know, metaphysics is always what's between heaven and here. You never want to live in the middle worlds. It's just like living in an artificial world. They're, they're just a translation point. You want, you want heaven and then the music that comes or the painting or, or the love or the dance. or So there's always heaven and then what the language is that allows it to be real, realized. So many people get intoxicated with the middle worlds and want to stay there. And what <coughs> Hitler had done ceremonially is he had created uh, patterns where he would take, you know, we know the swastika, but the swastika comes from the Pueblo peoples of the Southwest and the Himalayan peoples, and it's a symbol for time moving correctly. So he reversed it. And he thought, if I could, if I could control time, because humanity doesn't understand time, I could rule over space in the way I want. Okay, so time is considered in high spirituality to be a gift of the women, the feminine. It's not completely, but like in Hinduism, if you study Saraswati or Durga or Lakshmi, Parvati, they all have a capacity to move in time to help others. So I could say to somebody, could you go see your father? And they'll tell me ten months, ten months later, how did you know my father was dying? And I'll go, I didn't, I just knew you needed to see him. See, so women, you know, the grandmother, the mother, the midwife, we, it's just like in the feminine flow of time, like men could come in with the Y chromosome and protect not just fight, but protect and uphold with the different strength that the body actually has in the microchromosome. So <clears throat> what I did was went out in time and I would hold in prayer the qualities of what humanity could become and a grandmotherly position beside these young reincarnate children coming all over. And then what I did with Hitler is I would constantly, uh, since I knew about him, call him home but stand him down